0: All right, you ready to start a new sermon series? Leviticus is over. Can you believe it? All right, so today we're going to start a new series uh, on the Apostle Paul. I think that they share a little bit in common, the Apostle Paul and Leviticus, I think, uh, in that both are misunderstood. And I think um, your job as a student of the Bible, your job as a, a theologian, which is what all of you are, whether you know it or not, is going to be to discern and make the distinction between What the Bible actually says about Paul uh, and what you might have heard other people saying about Paul and what Paul supposedly believed or said or did. The same is true with Leviticus. Remember, we had to make that distinction between the stuff you thought you knew about Leviticus and the stuff Leviticus actually says. So I think the same will be true with Paul this month, and I'm excited to dig in. I believe uh, with really no hesitation at all that Paul is the second most influential man to ever live. In terms, especially in terms of Western civilization, so much of what we know about Western civilization, the way we do life, whether in the church or outside of the church, is due to the writings of the Apostle Paul. So much of what we believe, so much of, uh, of I mean, the very fact that the church exists outside of Jerusalem, outside of something more than just a, a sect within Judaism We owe that to Paul. We owe that to one man who said, I'm going to take this thing that's happening in Jerusalem and I'm going to take it all over the place, following Jesus' command to spread the gospel throughout all nations. Paul was the spark for the fire that swept and took the world by storm. So when I hear people, like I, I did a little research online, I was looking at like lists of the most influential people in human history. Like every magazine had their own list. Every website has its own kind of top 25 list. And Paul never even breaks the top 25 in most of these lists. And I understand I'm kind of a biased guy. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to like be rooting for Paul. But I do not understand how Time Magazine has, I think it was Paul at 34. And they had like, George W. Bush at 35 or something like, I, I, think, I think it's a little bit maybe, I, I mean, I know Bush has some uh, Houston connections and I'm not anti-W, but I, I think that might be an overstatement to say he belongs in the same, in the same class as the Apostle Paul in terms of influence, uh, historic, historical influence in the world. Uh, just ahead of Paul on that Time Magazine list was Charles Dickens, not buying it. And Ronald Reagan, which some of y'all are going to fight me about, but I'm not buying it. I don't buy it at all because I, I believe Paul's influence on the world today is stunning. Almost everything we know about how to do church, we get from Paul. Almost everything we sing about in our hymns and songs comes from what we call Pauline theology. The letters this one guy wrote, private letters he wrote to his friends almost 2,000 years ago, shape everything we know about uh, what we're doing together in the church, in our, in our theology, in our belief systems. And, and so um, I want to celebrate Paul. I want to recognize him for what he accomplished He was the first and earliest witness to the Christian faith on record. Now, I know there are eyewitnesses, people that were actually Jesus' disciples, which Paul was not. Paul never met Jesus in the flesh. And those witnesses were telling the stories of Jesus. But Paul was the first person to write anything down that we know of. So it's hard to get your head around, and some of you may not know this yet, but Paul writes his 13 letters Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Can I get an amen? (laughs) I worked on that a lot this week. And he writes these letters without the benefit of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which weren't written until a decade after. Can you imagine? So when you read Paul's writings, you have to keep that in mind, that he didn't have manuscripts yet of the Gospels that uh, we have become so familiar with. He was the first witness um, on record. And so I'm gonna spend the first part of our morning uh, going through what we know about Paul's early life, which we actually know more about Paul's early life or as much about it as we do Jesus' early life, which is not a whole lot, but something. There's something there to excavate. And then we're gonna move into what happened to change Paul's life completely. So uh, take your study guides if you have them. You might find those useful for this particular sermon. This sermon borders on uh, lecture at times. Uh, A lot of information in this sermon. Um, So those study guides are there for your use. And you also need your Bibles if you can take those out. The first thing we know about Paul's upbringing is that uh, he was born in Cilicia in the city of Tarsus. This is found in Acts 22, verse Three. So Cilicia was a province in the Roman Empire, uh, and Tarsus was the capital city of the Cilician province. So this is all in present-day Turkey. Paul was born and raised in what we call Turkey today. If that helps you get kind of a mental image of what Paul might have looked like, his skin color, things like that, his ethnicity. So uh, he's born in Tarsus in Cilicia. So Tarsus was the capital city of this very prominent Roman province. It was located in uh, uh, among three very important trade routes. Tarsus was a very important city to the Roman Empire, critically um, located, very important uh, to the Roman economy. Um, Tarsus had beautiful landscapes. I got a couple of pictures from some of the landscapes in Tarsus. This is a waterfall and a brook in uh, Tarsus that we think has been there a long, long time. And then there's a mountain range called the Tarsus Mountains. And so Paul grew up in the midst of uh, creation's beauty, which to me makes sense because Paul writes quite a bit about how God speaks to people who may not have ever heard the name Jesus before, God can still speak the gospel into people's life if by no other way, by the beauty of creation. And so Paul grows up in the midst of the grandeur of these mountains and these streams, and, uh, and he gets a sense for God's majesty in creation at Tarsus. Tarsus was also a huge city, a mega city by first century standards. There were 300,000 people in Tarsus, which I know for us, is not a ton of people, Um, but you have to keep in mind in the first century, there were only 200 million people in the world in the first century. And so uh, respective to global population, if you took a city the size of Tarsus in the first century, 300,000 people in the first century would equal something like, with 7 billion people in the world today, would equal something like 11 million people today, respective to global populations. That's relative to other cities. That's about like New York City is today. It was just this incredible metropolis. And one of the reasons, one of the main drivers for the growth of the city of Tarsus was uh, that in 42 BC, the Roman government declared Tarsus a free city, um, which meant that Rome wanted to keep the people of Tarsus happy, wanted to buy their loyalty, and so Rome said, y'all don't have to pay income taxes anymore. So can you imagine living in a place where you don't have to pay any income tax to your state? Texans. <laughs> can, you, can we just have a moment of silence for how awesome Texas is <laughs> as a new resident? Now, imagine if the federal government said, you know, Texas, we're so grateful for all the good things y'all do for the United States. We're so grateful for the way Texas makes the US stronger and wealthier and smarter, obviously. And, and we just we wanna say all Texans from this point forward will not have to pay any federal income taxes either. Can you imagine what the effects would be? You think Houston is crowded now? That's what's going on in Tarsus. And as Tarsus grows throughout Paul's childhood, the people moving to Tarsus bring with them all sorts of culture and all sorts of entertainment. Um, Sports were a huge thing in Tarsus during Paul's childhood. The Greek games were held in Tarsus, which, again, is another thing that I hear and it rings true to me about when I read Paul's writings later in life because he, like a good Texas preacher uses a lot of sports analogies in his sermons. Run the good race. Run the race with endurance. Fight the good fight. You hear all of these sport analogies. And that's because Paul grew up in a city where sports were a pretty big deal uh, to him in his, in his childhood and in, uh, in his culture. So uh, the other thing Tarsus was known for, and we'll move on after this. I'm kind of geeking out on this, but uh, was, uh, was education. Tarsus was known as kind of the other Ivy League. Like the premier schools in the Roman Empire were in places like Athens and uh, Alexandria. But Tarsus uh, gave Athens and Alexandria a run for their money. Like Tarsus had this university that was kind of known as the other elite school. It was kind of the Rice University of uh, the first century Roman world. And Paul more than likely studied there. And that would make sense because Paul is obviously highly skilled in Greek rhetoric, in Stoicism, which would have been uh, the driver of the, uh, of the educational system then, and in Greek uh, philosophy. So um, Paul comes from this place and, uh, and studies uh, at, this, uh, at this school that was highly respected. All right. The second thing we know about Paul is that he was brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul spends the first 12 years or so of his life in Tarsus, and then he moves to uh, Jerusalem. His parents basically send him, when he's 12 or so, to Jerusalem to uh, a Jewish boarding school to study under this well-known historical figure. He is in several different historical sources, Gamaliel. Gamaliel is, uh, is known to have been a member of the Great Sanhedrin during the early first century. The Great Sanhedrin was located in Jerusalem. It was kind of like the Supreme Court of the Jewish people, and Gamaliel sat on it. Great rabbi, great interpreter of the law, and renowned for such things. He was uh, probably on the Sanhedrin when Jesus came to trial there. He probably had something to do with Jesus being convicted and sent away to Pontius Pilate. And uh, and he had trained Paul for several years. Paul sat at Gamaliel's feet. Gamaliel is also known for being kind of a moderate when it comes to interpreting the law and carrying out uh, prosecution against those who break the law. We see evidence of this in Acts chapter 5 where Paul's teacher, Gamaliel, makes an appearance in Acts 5 33 to 39 but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel the teacher of the law respected by all the people stood up and ordered the men be put outside for a short time. What's happening here is that the Christians are being chased down, hunted down. Peter, in fact, is being chased down by other members of the Sanhedrin and they want to kill him. Then Gamaliel said to them, "Fellow Israelites, keep away from these men and let them alone because if their movement is of human origin it will fail, but if it is of God you will be found fighting against" God. So Gamaliel takes kind of a moderate approach to what's happening with the first Christians. This is the guy that taught Paul. Here's the next thing the scriptures tell us about Paul's upbringing. Paul says in Philippians 3, 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, a Pharisee, zealous for God. We hear zealous, we think it means just... Uh, uh, excitable or passionate. When a first century Jew wrote, I'm zealous, it meant something more than that because the zealots were a group of social activists, uh, revolutionaries that wanted total upheaval in society. Jesus had a couple zealots on zealots in his group of disciples. If anybody knows the two zealots on, in Jesus' group of 12, I'll give you a free cup of mediocre coffee. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, both Zealots, at least those two, Um, maybe more. Uh, Paul is saying here that he may or may not have been a member of the Zealot Party, but he shares a lot in common with the Zealots. He has that same kind of enthusiasm for social change among the Jews. But the most important thing Paul says here is that I was a Pharisee. I am a Pharisee because uh, we talk a lot about Pharisees at church, usually in a not-so-nice way, but Pharisees were the most respected people in first-century Judaism. You weren't born into Phariseeism. It wasn't a genealogical thing. It wasn't passed down to you by your family. You chose to become a Pharisee. You worked for it. It was a career decision. It was something you strove for. And only the cream of the crop of young Jewish boys became Pharisees. Only the honor roll students, the Eagle Scouts, the best of the best would have been considered to be Pharisees. Because you had to pass all these rigorous tests to become a Pharisee. You had to memorize the Psalms. Not a psalm like I did when I was a kid, when you had to come down for a children's sermon, if you said one psalm, they would give you candy and a sticker, and I would rack my brain the whole morning trying to memorize one psalm. The psalms. You can look in your Bible and see how many psalms there are. Imagine memorizing them all by heart. Paul did this to become a Pharisee. And on top of the psalms, you memorize Leviticus and Deuteronomy as well, for good measure. Incredible. Memories. This was pre-Google memories. Now that every you know, Google's mem- remembering everything for us, we don't have any memories anymore. Back in the day, if you want to be a Pharisee, you memorized much of the Hebrew scriptures. And so that is what Paul had been working for his whole life. And finally he was in. Finally, he'd been accepted. His life was going somewhere. His career is on track. As a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were distinguished among the people. Everywhere you went, if you are a Pharisee, people respected you because of what you had accomplished in your life. Paul had arrived. He says as much in Galatians 1.14, he says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age. People my age I grew up with, I'm better than them is what he's saying. I hope you're getting a picture for the kind of personality we have with Paul. It's gonna help us for the rest of this series. Hope you're starting to get an idea, an image in your head of what kind of person, a human being Paul was. I want you to picture someone who lived in a major city, huge city full of energy culture with a strong economy, Picture someone who was a citizen of the world's only superpower. Picture someone born into relative privilege, born into relative wealth. Paul's family had means. Picture someone who was given access to higher education. Picture someone who did relatively well in school. Picture someone who was an overachiever, whose picture was in who's who among Jewish university students or whatever that book might have been. Picture someone who was proud and ambitious, picture someone who compares his accomplishments to others his own age, and there you have Paul. But my hunch is, if you go back and think about everything I just asked you to picture, I haven't just described Paul, I've described 95% of the people sitting in this room right now. How many of you were born into the world's only superpower as citizens of the world's only superpower? Most of you should have your hands up. How many of you were born into relative wealth and relative uh, uh, privilege? Worldwide relativity, all right? Think about it, think about it. How many people in the world would trade places with you? Probably 99 out of 100 would trade places with you. How many of you were given access to higher education? How many of, how many of you did relatively well in school? Overachievers in the house? Yeah, you're lying if you don't have your hand up right now. I have never seen a bigger group of Overachieving, ambitious people than, than we have in this room and in the city of Houston. Ambition is in the air in Houston. It was one of the greatest adjustments my family had to make from the sleepy Midwest coming to Houston. You got away with more in the sleepy Midwest. Like, people didn't care if the coffee was mediocre. People here complain because you're <laughs> ambitious. You're ambitious, you care about excellence, you want to do things the right way. That's just the culture of this city, especially in this part of the city. And I think especially in this room right now, we have a congregation of relative high achievers. You're an ambitious bunch. You're working incredibly hard at school or at your career or at being the best parent, the best mother, whatever you can be. And most of you probably compare yourselves to other people your age. A show of hands? <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. We all struggle with that. I want us to see how much solidarity and how much in common we have with Paul. I would much rather relate to the cool like, disciples like Peter and the fishermen, but I've been fishing like twice in my life. Paul is who I am. Paul is who ha- most of us are. Um, Because we share a lot of that pride and a lot of that uh, ambition. And I think that's an awesome thing. I think it's a wonderful thing. Sometimes we're taught to be ashamed of our ambitions. I don't think that's what God would have us to be. I think wanting to do great things. I think it's rooted in a good place. I think it's well-intentioned. Your desire is to work hard, to do things the right way, to be a part of something great, to build a good career. All of that is of God. I'm convinced God made you that way. God made us with ambition. I'm an ambitious person, too. I want to have the greatest church. I want to be the best pastor. I, wanna, I want all the best things, just like you all want the best things. And that's a good thing. But ambition and pride can come with a prize. And ambition, particularly, has a very dark side. Misplaced ambition, blind ambition, selfish, self-centered ambition can lead you to a very dark place. This is where it led Paul. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through chapter 8, verse 3. This is what the dark side of ambition looked like for Paul. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. This is the apostle Stephen who was preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. Stephen, though, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is the Hebrew name of Paul. Uh, it's not like God changed his name from Saul to Paul, like Abram and Abraham. Um, but in those times, uh, Jewish boys living in, outside of Jerusalem had a Hebrew name and a Greek name. So uh, Saul was his Hebrew name. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul, or Paul, approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Um, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And there's really no whitewashing this, is there? It's an awful, horrific thing that Paul did. He not only oversaw the stoning of innocent Christians, and stoning is, when you think about it, I think people think of like little pebbles or stones like this size that you threw at someone, which would be awful enough. Stoning involved huge stones that were dropped from 15 feet up onto the exposed chest of an innocent person. Paul oversaw that. And as as if that weren't enough, Paul then gathered a bunch of men and went door to door in Jerusalem, breaking into people's private residences. And if they refused to renounce Jesus, Paul would have them imprisoned at best, humiliated men and women. And what happened to their children? You see, this is the kind of thing that ISIS is doing now. In the first century, it was the apostle Paul that was leading this effort against the Christians. We're horrified by what ISIS is doing. We should be. We should be equally horrified by what Paul did. And the question becomes, what could it have been that drove Paul to do such horrific things? I mean, was he an evil person at his core? Was he a hateful person? Did he have a terrible upbringing or something? I don't think it was any of that. I'm pretty pretty sure by the personality profile we've God on Paul, that what was at the heart of these actions, these abuses, were pride and ambition. I think Paul is being the best Pharisee he can be because I think Paul is looking to make the next step up. I think he's looking for a little more recognition, maybe a little more pay, maybe a little more renown, a little more something. Maybe there's an opening in the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and Paul is looking for a promotion. And he's working a little harder, a little more to get some attention for himself. I think ambition is what's driving Paul's actions in uh, the book of Acts. So, just to revisit this, I want to say again that ambition itself is not a bad thing until ambition becomes all about you. When ambition is all about you, then suddenly you find yourself worshiping at this altar of your own success, your own glory, your own reputation your own advancement, your own fame, your own pay, your own possessions, your own renown. It's all about you. And you have, before you know it, done things you never would have thought you were capable of. When ambition becomes your God, you will treat people In ways you never thought possible. You will treat those closest to you, those who love you the most, those who really got you where you are in ways that you never could have imagined before. When ambition becomes your God, you wind up in that dark place. And that's what happens to Paul. But amazing grace is not done with him yet. Amazing grace is never done with us. Open again to Acts 26. This is what happens next. This is Paul's account of what happens next. Acts 26, verses 12 to 18. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. So the Sanhedrin from Jerusalem had sent Paul to Damascus Carrying subpoenas of the Christians they know are there to go and drag them out of their homes and arrest them. Paul is making the two week journey by foot from Jerusalem to Damascus. About noon, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It, It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith and uh, by faith in me. Kicking it against the goads is probably what stood out as something no one knows uh, what that means. Uh, it's really simple. I'll just say this really quickly. But to kick against the goads is an agricultural term. If you grew up on a farm, maybe you know what this means. But a goad is a long stick with a pointy end. And a farmer or a rancher would press the goad against the side of the animal's leg or, uh, or their hindquarters and try to guide them. So they wouldn't poke them with it, but they would just try to guide them in the right direction. Like if you had a donkey, you wanted to get the donkey to go in the right direction. Now the donkey would kick against the goats. The donkey would get hurt because the donkey would kick the pointy end of the stick. And so when Jesus tells Paul he's kicking against the goats, he's basically calling Paul a jackass. (laughs) He's telling him, you're kicking against the goats, Paul. I've been guiding you your whole life. What else do I have to give you to open your eyes? to how much I need you to serve me, Paul. I gave you a good family. I gave you a great city. I gave you all the beauty around you when you were growing up. I gave you a good education. I gave you this gift of ambition. And what have you done with it, Paul? You've kicked against the goats. You've tried to go your own way, Paul. And all you've done is hurt yourself and drive yourself further into darkness. And th- this is the point of Jesus's. uh uh, appearance to Paul. And this is what Jesus does with all of us. Jesus goads you. Jesus tries to gently guide you. John Wesley called this the prevenient grace of God that has been there all along. All the things you've been given, all the privileges, all the gifts, your ambition, it's all a gift from God. And the question is, what have you done with it? That was Jesus' question to Paul. That's Jesus' question to us today. What have you done with what God gave you? When I look out in this room, I see a room full of high achievers, a room full of leaders, really, your leaders in your own spheres at work and in your homes and at school. And we ask for leaders to step up at the church, and everybody avoids eye contact and things like that. But this is a room full of very capable, educated, empowered Mostly like privileged and well-positioned people. And you've got ambition, which is a great gift. Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, says ambition is something every good leader has. But great leaders figure out the secret, the mystery, that it's not about me. It's not about me. For Paul, it was all about Paul. And so Jesus met him on the road. Jesus met him there and he said, Paul, is it about you or is it about something bigger than you? Paul is so blinded that he can't see in any direction except within. And he doesn't like what he sees. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. Jesus blinds Paul, and in his blindness, his three days of blindness reveal a deeper handicap. He has been blind for years, going the wrong way for years, living for himself for years. And in this dark place for three days, Paul can see nowhere but within, and he's forced to stop and ask, am I a man of God who happens to be successful, or have I become a success? Who happens to believe in God? Where are my priorities? Jesus leaves Paul in this dark place of self-reflection and introspection. And if you're a high achiever like Paul was, you avoid that dark place like the plague. Because you've been told all your life, strong people forge ahead. High achievers, when the going gets tough, the tough... You go. You don't stop. You don't stop to think, what am I doing with my life? Where is this all headed? What have I done with the gifts I've been given? But Saul stopped. And he was convicted and he was converted. I don't like how we talk about conversion in the church these days. I don't like that probably in your Bibles, above that passage we read earlier, it titled that passage, The Conversion of God. Paul or the conversion of Saul. I don't like the idea that Paul had one conversion in his life. I think Paul experienced several conversions in his life. That's how it works. I don't like the idea that many of you think that to convert yourself to Jesus would mean to change everything about who you are and what you love about your life. I don't like the idea that when we think of Christian conversion, we picture a tent with a sweaty preacher up front with a microphone in his hand and we picture the 17th verse just as I am and you picture yourself having to come down the aisle crying and like handing over your whiskey flask to the preacher and like everything's going to change, glory. Like that's not how this works. That's not what it means to convert your life to Christ. But we still need to talk about what it does mean. It doesn't mean if you give your heart to Jesus today that everything about your life and everything you love about your life has to change. You'll still get up and go to work tomorrow. You'll still be an ambitious person. You'll still be the person that you are, but Jesus will redirect your resources. Jesus will reset your priorities. Jesus will open your eyes after years of blindness and set you on a new road. That's what Jesus does for Paul. He doesn't change who he is fundamentally. Paul was ambitious before Damascus Road. He was ambitious after, but he was ambitious for the right things. He was ambitious for something more than just himself. And from that day onward, everything that he had was Jesus's. And for that reason, because Paul made that one decision, one man made one decision to give what he had to Jesus. We sit here today, centuries later, 2,000 years later, because one man made one decision. This is all I want you to see today. I want you to see the impact one person's one decision can make. and I, I want you to know that your pastor's heart is exploding at the thought, exploding with joy at the thought of you being that one person today who by your one decision impacts hundreds or thousands of others. By your one decision today to say, Jesus, thank you for making me who I am. Jesus, thank you for all the gifts you've given me for my family, my friends, my money, my job, my career, everything that I have, Jesus, but I've treated it like it's mine and it's not. It's yours, take it. Use it. Use my life, Jesus, starting today so that my glory is your glory. My reputation is your reputation. My money is your money. My achievement is your achievement. My life is your life. I pray that you will make that decision this morning. Don't let another moment pass you by. Will you pray with me? God, for your amazing grace, we are so thankful that never will you let us go. Never will you give up on us. God, even when we've acted selfishly and acted like we deserve everything that we have or we've earned it or worked for it or whatever, God, we understand it's a free gift from you. So we're truly grateful, God, and I pray that you're working in the heart of someone this morning, that you are shining a light, a blinding light on our hearts that will change us and get our attention, that someone makes that decision right now. To make what is ours, yours. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.